The Bagatelle Number no. 6 by Beethoven, from his set of six Bagatelles, Opus 126, as played by Luis Magalesh in that live performance recorded in the Endler Concert Hall on the 8th of October 2005. A very warm welcome from me, Adrian Fox, to tonight's edition of Great Interpreters. It's so wonderful being back here behind the Fine Music Radio microphone for this, my first program of 2013. The subject for tonight's program is Luis Magalesh, a pianist who needs little introduction to Cape Town or indeed to South African audiences, and whose performances here and abroad, on stage and on disc, have been met with the highest critical acclaim. I could wax lyrical about Luis's technique, his musicianship, his sound, his seemingly effortless playing. All of this he has in abundance and then some, however much he likes to deny it. But for me, the one thing that I have always felt whenever listening to his playing is a sense of hearing some aspect of a piece in a way that I have never heard it before. A musical phrase, illuminated by the way in which he has shaped the musical line, an element of humour, a key characteristic of his personality, brought to bear on his interpretation of a piece. Those are the things that cast a work in some new light. And these are for me the things that resonate the most when listening to his playing. A few days ago, I had the opportunity to interview Luis at his home in Stellenbosch, as he was preparing to jet off to Berlin for rehearsals for an upcoming recording project. And during the course of tonight's program, I'll be sharing with you a few extracts from that interview. If you have any questions or if you'd like to comment on tonight's program, you're welcome to call me in the Fine Music Radio studio on 021-401-1013 or send me an email at adrian at onandofftherecord.com. And remember that if you'd like a copy of tonight's program, you can download a free podcast of this broadcast available as of the 27th of January from my website www.onandofftherecord.com or alternatively from iTunes. But now, on to tonight's program. You've just finished recording together with your wife and dear partner Nina Schumann the Bach Goldberg Variations in the arrangement for two pianos by Joseph Reinberger and Max Rieger. Bach is, however, not the first composer that one thinks about when one thinks of the two piano repertoire. And in essence, it's quite a different kind of beast to, say, the two piano music by Rachmaninoff or Brahms. What would you say were the particular challenges of recording this piece? Yeah, the, it's a very loaded question. I'm not sure uh, there is a right or wrong answer for the difficulty of such a monster. Um, I told Nina at the end of the of the first day of our preparation, not the first day of the recording, but the first day of the, our preparation. It, it is quite a trip, you know. It's it's a bit like going into a completely different time, a completely different sphere of of being uh, that you lose yourself in the process, and that that kind of um, spiritual connection to the music becomes so. Uh, uh, selfish almost you know you only think about yourself you only think about your cocoon your place where you are playing uh, even the kids have to fight for our attention <laughs> when we play that kind of music so it's it's really um, that is the biggest difficulty uh-huh. is how do you portray such unbelievable music in with two unbelievably mechanical instruments like the piano uh, and I think it's always the the shortfall of performing music like this that you end up playing in, in such a mechanical way mm. that um, takes away all the all the inner beauty in the music so 
that was for me the biggest challenge. Um, because in a sense, and correct me if I'm wrong, but you, you know, at least with Rahmaninov or a Brahms, you've got sound, you can dig in, you know, you can really, you know, try mm-hmm. and find the meat of the piece. Whereas this is something much more ethereal and transcendental in a way, isn't it? I mean, yeah, it's different. It's, it's a completely it's, different idiom. It's transcendental in, in, in a spiritual way. Uh-huh. Because musically, in the, from the technical aspect of writing music, it's genius, of course, but it's quite uh, simple. If one takes it apart, you know, the genius of Bach is because he made, he was able to create unbelievable expression with very little. Uh, Rachmaninoff was able to create unbelievable expression with a lot. Uh, so that those are, for me, the two uh, balancing points. And that's why I told Nina also many years ago that I'll never play Bach again. But I broke that promise by doing this recording. And because of the exact, that same problem. It's so focused emotion that if you break your attention for one millisecond, it jeopardizes your whole yeah. take, your yeah. whole performance. Yeah. Um, but it was a challenge for both of us, and it was also a spiritual challenge uh, as a couple. Uh, and uh, we needed to do this. And you know, if people don't like it, they can go somewhere else <laughs> I'm sure they're gonna <laughs> like it tell me when is the CD when expecting um, the CD to be released July this year it's going to be released okay. um, we will have some uh, concerts around here in the southern part of the world and then later in December and January in the northern part of the world in uh, December in Europe and January in the States speaking of the northern part of this world um, you were born in Portugal um, and you started studying piano at the age of five, if I'm not mistaken, mm-hmm. and gave your first public performance at nine years of age. Tell me about your early musical development. What what was the spark that sort of led you or, or made you decide to follow a career in music? Well, it's, there is uh, no real spark. I don't think there is a spark. Maybe there was, but if there was, I don't remember. <laughs> I should ask my father about that or my mother. Uh, it, my cousin uh, played piano um, and he came to practice piano at my place where we had a piano uh, my sister also played piano but had no interest in it so I hardly heard her practicing she was more into the dancing side of of the arts so she was in the, in the ballet and all that stuff and I was fascinated by my cousin practicing Horacio and uh, that I remember clearly uh, my father is a textile engineer, so he has no uh, formal uh, connection with music, but he's an amateur musician. He loves music, he's, he goes to every concert, he listens to everything, um, he conducts his own choir, he's now retired and decided to, to compose. And I keep telling him he's decomposing. <laughs> <laughs> he doesn't like that. Uh, but there is that, that affinity from yeah. his side. And uh, I think probably my parents noticed uh, some sort of uh, interest uh, and put me in in private piano lessons. I still believe that it's more of a Portuguese thing or a northern <laughs> a northern world thing mm-hmm. is to have uh, extra activities after mm-hmm. school you know I, maybe they just put me to for me not to be at home or something like that i don't know i don't know it could also be like that 
but it started I enjoyed it I went to the conservatoire after after that at 11 years old 10 or 11 years old it was at the same time with um, high school uh, and after a while I could not do anything else properly uh, or as properly as piano uh, so I had to make a clear decision on how to earn money uh, as a job yeah. and piano was pretty much the best thing I could do uh, out of everything I still tried <laughs> I still tried doing everything else well tell me because you mentioned your sister Mafalda um, what I find quite interesting is that both of you have a very strong entrepreneurial spirit in a sense I mean she's a very successful businesswoman in Portugal but you've also been an entrepreneur and you've also established yourself as a businessman do you think there's any sort of correlation or you know was it something that you learned from your parents or was it just something that just happened and there's no real particular significance in it but I just thought it was interesting that you both know, of you I've, have proven yourself in business I'm not equipped to you know to determine genetic alignment on specific <laughs> aspects of, of your being but the I soon realized uh, too probably too soon in my life that that dreamy um, idea of a musician just practicing every day and living for the music and not taking care of anything else not paying tax and not uh, it, it's just bull simply as that you know the the reality is that only a handful can afford to do that Mm-hmm. Everyone else, every common mortal, will have to be creative. Will have to be um, to find ways or different ways, alternative ways to put the message, uh, their message across. Um, maybe that's a genetic uh, uh, <laughs> inference from my family, or something that was built from my parents, and they were both very successful uh, in what they did in their business and in their um, profession. Um, I'm not saying that I am successful, but I'm trying to create uh, an awareness to something that was a bit stale uh, a couple of decades ago. Um, now it's really uh, booming, and soon enough it will be streamlined. That's how I'm uh, uh, predicting it to be. Yes. Uh, so I'm... I'm practicing in that way. I'm running our, my business of playing concerts in that way. I'm running our business of doing CDs in that way. Is with some sort of prediction that this whole idea of art is going to be much more uh, streamlined, much more sterile, um, but giving at the same time much more opportunity for creativity, which I don't think happened in the 90s and in the, how do you say, the thousands. The 2000s? The early, yeah, the early years of the new millennium, shall <laughs> <Yeah>. we say. <laughs> no, but you are incredibly successful at it, and we're going we're gonna to be talking about that in just a few moments. But um, it, it requires a way of thinking, and I think musicians have a tendency to, or they, they have the potential to be good at business. Um, I think yeah. just because of one thing is discipline. Yeah. It's not creativity. Uh, It can be creativity the moment that you start thinking of different ways of doing things. But it's all about discipline. That I've learned too early. (laughs) Let's put it like that. (laughs) So, and and that's probably my shortfall in my family life, in my personal life, in my health. It's the fact that if I get obsessed about 
completing a specific thing or finishing learning a specific piece, I will not be able to sleep mm -hmm. for as long as it needs. And like now, you know, we finished recording three days ago and I have to go to Berlin on Sunday and I'm consumed by this. And I, I actually can afford to <laughs> stop a bit, but I just don't because yeah. it's constantly in my head. Yeah. And I think that is discipline. Uh, that above all will give all the con necessary condiments for the perfect dish. Yeah. Are you a perfectionist? Yeah, in my own mind, yes, uh -huh. of course. Uh -huh. But perfectionism in my own mind. But you yeah. drive yourself hard, obviously. Yes, yes, very hard. Too hard sometimes. Transcendental in a spiritual way. Here is Luis Magalesh playing the Bach Toccata in E minor, BWV 914.
want to ask you about your studies. And uh, you studied under several teachers, including Eduardo Rocha, Jose Alexander Reich, Pedro Bermaster, and Vladimir Viardu. And you also received master classes from such preeminent performers as Alicia de la Rocha. And I know that you were once asked in an interview who had influenced your playing the most and in what way. And you mentioned that from your Brazilian teacher, with whom you studied intensively for a couple of years, you learned physical and technical awareness. From Alicia de la Rocha, you learned the value of time in music. From Vladimir Viardo, you learned to express musically that which is inside you. And that from many other teachers, you learned what you disliked. I wanted to ask you if you could please explain to the listeners why each of these individual components are so important. It's a complicated question, <laughs> uh, but uh, I think it has a, a simple answer. And that's how I want to conduct my own life as well as, as a teacher, as a piano teacher. It's, it's not what you teach, it's what the student learns. And that's more important to think of teaching in that perspective um, and it's much more valuable in the long run than just thinking I got this from um, that teacher taught me this and that teacher taught me that and that one that no I got that mm -hmm. I got this and because different people will have different experiences with the same teacher I can have one experience with Alicia that mm -hmm. was completely different from the person next yes. to me um, so it's not what they teach it's how you receive it and for that you need to be in a place in time with the planets aligned <laughs> and your uh, bowel and movements in check <laughs> you, know, you have to be very uh, uh, tuned to receive information and many times one tends to criticize the teacher but in reality it's the student that is not listening in a specific way and then comes the whole argument of communication techniques, where you are transmitting the information. So that's how I learned, probably because that's what I needed at that time, without knowing. I needed that awareness of time from Alicia, and it, it was a godsend. Uh, the technical aspects from uh, Joel, and it was a godsend. But maybe that's not what they intended, and it's not what they really like to teach but that's what I needed so uh, 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 that is a very uh, important uh, well bipolar equation that one has to have always in mind is not what you teach but how you receive it and what do you receive in that process yes so the culmination of all that was with Nina and we keep talking about uh, each other well we are married I guess it's normal uh, but I learned from her much more from the um, receiving perspective because I was able to then use this, all these little silos and start creating roads to connect them in between them while they were originally just built in one uh, individual plot with no access to each other's house now I created some sort of neighborhood that I could connect a road between the actual silos not necessarily to me, but between them and receiving the information in one go instead of receiving different information from different silos and then I would have to digest it. Yes. So she was fundamental uh, well, on I, that. I remember I read somewhere that you said your perception of Nina and her playing is that she seems to get 
the balance between the different elements right. And I think this is mm-hmm. linking up with what you're saying mm-hmm. now is that you know the balance between technique and preparation and memory and endurance and you know all of those things. So it's interesting. So that's something that's what you picked up from her was how to connect yes. all these different facets. Yeah. Because yeah. one tends to get obsessed about small things which they don't really mean much like this whole idea of technique you know this te- why everyone obsesses about it and I st- not because uh, Nina tells me but maybe it's the ones that cannot do it then obsess about it sure but it's because there is a, f- a gap there that doesn't mean that that is the, the only way to achieve a specific goal the whole idea of balancing uh, or creating a, a, an argument to an hypothesis is to be able to research outside the box is to be able to create a very wide uh, source of, or, or be, at least have access to a wide source of information and narrowing it down for a specific purpose. And uh, it, one tends to think about these things outside the context of music. And that's the biggest risk. And that she taught me, uh, not because she sat down and she taught me, but out of conversation, out of living, um, is the purpose of mm-hmm. something. It's not just playing for the sake of playing it's the purpose for that specific note requiring the sound that you feel it should have then you start sourcing your own uh, palette of technical choices of imagination of sound of whatever you may think that is difficult I think that's what everyone is trying to achieve and they never get to fortunately they never get to and and the ones that think they get it they are in denial (laughs) that's why it makes it to be an art form you know, there is no perfection there will be always imperfection and it has to remain like that yeah. but correct me if I'm wrong and I think this is what is interesting about your development as a pianist your your early or at least the period that you studied with your Brazilian teacher was was the focus was overtly on technique correct yeah. which at the age that you were was actually very fortunate because you were still growing your body was still developing and, and that helped a lot to I think establish your yeah, I saw a picture. Skills. I saw a picture of uh, um, a class concert that we did. Everyone did together. It was on Facebook. I started checking the faces, and it was a long time ago. And you know, I have such fond memories of them. And why did I get that inference or that kind of uh, uh, interpretation of what happened to me while others were playing beautifully with the biggest amount of freedom and all that? comes back to the same argument. Yes. Maybe it was my perception of it. And right for you at that stage. And right yes. for me at yes. that stage. And it was fine. It, 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 there is nothing wrong with it. Uh, that's how it was. <laughs> and now for something truly extraordinary. A recording of Louis at the age of 17 playing the Etude Number no. 4, Opus 10 by Chopin. <laughs> Thank you. 
you traveled to the United States to go and study with Maestro Viardu at the University of North Texas. And um, and getting back to Nina as well, that's where you met her. And I wanted to ask you whether it was love at first sight because you married <laughs> you married each other six months to the day. And I wanted you to just tell us about that initial meeting because I hear that there were fur coats and perfume it involved. It was wonderful. It was absolutely wonderful. It, the, the soundtrack was missing. That's the only <laughs> Meaning the background the music. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it was Dallas Airport. You know, I needed some sort of very luscious uh, music, but it wasn't there. Only trucks and pickup trucks uh, and cowboys um, <laughs> it was probably the, again the right time for it to happen um, even though I was not in the mindset um, to be in a relationship for many reasons and I met her and you know she helped me out on my things and but I was fascinated by the woman What's going on? Here? <laughs> <laughs> you know, hmm. and uh, yeah, I don't want to to go into too much detail, but it was, I think it, I think no, I know now it was uh, a mutual, uh, uh, reciprocal kind of feeling. Yes, um, it was very quick, and one keeps thinking, you know, maybe is it too quick? No, it's not too quick. If it's mm. right, it's right. Mm. And since then, we are happily married for many years. I don't want, I'm very bad with counting years, but I think 13 or 14 years already. Uh, and it keeps growing, and it still feels the same way as it was in 99. And that's fantastic, you know, if yeah. that's the case, even with two dysfunctional kids. You know, that's, <laughs> if that still works, then must, something must be right. Yeah. yeah. If I'm not mistaken, your and Nina's professional career as a piano dear really began in 1999 when you partnered Nina for a performance of the Bartok Sonata for two pianos and percussion. Did you see eye to eye musically from the start? We know you were. Hell honestly... no. Hell <laughs> <laughs> no. We almost killed each other. Really? Yes. And we vowed then. But listen, if the first piece that you play together as a duo is the Bartok Sonata for two pianos and percussion, then. <laughs> You're setting yourself up doomed. for fail. Yes. It's just doomed. Yes. Um, and I tried to be as adaptive as possible, and I'm saying this with a grin because once she listens to this, she will kick me. But yeah, it it it, it happened. It needed to happen. It was. Uh, it still is a very difficult work for any established duo, um, but we managed to survive. Uh, and, and the I, relationship survived. And I must <laughs> say that. You know, when something goes wrong artistically between uh, a couple, it can go very wrong. Mm -hmm. Can really go very wrong. People maybe think that this is all kind of a rose garden party and kind of. If there is any sort of um, disagreement statically about things, you start looking at each other funny. And because it's so fundamental to the person that you are, is it yes, not? I mean, exactly. Yes, exactly. And uh, and that's why everyone tells me, are you married with a musician? You must be crazy. And a pianist as well. You know? Because it can go very wrong. And and that's why I valued our relationship even more. Not only because I love her to death, but because somehow with our differences and the, the differences of playing, the differences of many things in, uh, in our uh, musical life it still works 
and that is re that requires people uh, or people or two people with a very um, generous heart mm -hmm. and if I may the false modesty I think we both have very generous heart that we can ac accept different styles of playing different styles of or different choices of, of uh, emotion for a specific piece and sometimes we end up liking um, things that are completely out of the ordinary but they are just beautiful and that's fine that's fine uh, as long as we respect that that is that is who you are mm -hmm. and if you accept that then the relationship works fine critics including the American record guide have compared you and Nina to the fabled piano duos of Vladimir Ashkenazi and Andre Previn of and course <laughs> <laughs> Marta Argerich and Nelson Freire oh okay. Marta <laughs> The second part of my question, you've alluded to this now already, is in what ways do you complement and influence one another musically as a piano duo and as, as two Listen, musical those, partners? First of all, those connotations are, are really generous. Um, we use them, <laughs> of course we do, but they are really, really very generous and, and we are very honored to be put in such a... Uh, in the same sentence without a full stop in between. <laughs> you know, that is pretty, pretty important. Um, you see, the moment that we start talking in depth about these kind of things, one ends up talking about personal life. Because it's the small things of the personal life that one ends up learning about each other's playing. I only fairly recently, about two years ago, started realizing how Nina's breathing works. Musical breathing. Uh, and that's pretty late. Uh, but it gives an idea of how long it takes for you to really know the other person um, in, in that way, in that technical way, mm -hmm. with inverted commas. Mm -hmm. So the, 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 the motive on which we, we balance our own styles of playing on two pianos, uh, or even four hands, uh, even though it's a, s a slightly different medium, uh, very different medium actually, is the ability to listen even more carefully. And that has a direct influence on your technical input on the instrument. Uh, you, you tend to uh, think about balancing, you tend to think about um, the timing of the other uh, person. For instance, with the Bach, um, most of the variations, or some of the nicest variations for, for me, uh, are the canons. And I always got the, the, the piano where it has the second... <laughs> appearance of the theme so the, the, the imitation theme and that has to be an altruistic state of being period you just have to sit there wait for her to do what she wants to do and you have to imitate yes. you cannot just go on your own thing you cannot start thinking oh no let me bring something new No, it will become completely out of context that requires uh, um very in-depth knowledge of the other person. You need to know everything about that person. You need to know how she breathes, how she thinks, how she plays, or he, sorry. How, how uh, the whole idea of sound color, the whole idea of sound production, how much time does she take to depress the key for a specific sound. And mm -hmm. fortunately by now, I know her well enough to adjust to that. Um, so it's... It, 
I think we love more playing with each other because the dialogue does not need words and yes. it's a different type of dialogue yes. you know we can probably and I'm sounding very arty farty now but you can probably have a conversation without saying one word and many times when we practiced and we had a fight before which we have very frequently and after playing we didn't we were fine we, that's what I meant also by the spiritual trip there's something very cleansing uh, about this work in specific but also about uh, playing together for the relationship nevertheless I needed to play something very dirty after this week <laughs> because everything was so bloody pristine like so clean clinical no but it was it was a huge growth for the duo this one just an interesting question. Um, have you got, like, for example, with repertoire that you've performed often, take, for example, one of the Rachmaninoff you know, suites, do you always play first piano or second piano, or do you swap just out of interest to mix things up? No, um, no we, we swap to practice. We practice um, not all the time uh, because certain, certain pieces don't, don't really require it. Uh, but, for instance, the suites or the Bach, we end up playing each other's... Uh, piano part each other's part in order to well take care of ensemble issues that's the first uh, and as a result of that sometimes you find things that the other person didn't find and then you listen huh oh, how did you get to that yes we do that on the practicing basis but on the performing side no meaning we still have a life <laughs> <laughs> and like children it. and exactly. a business <laughs> I want to go to bed early <laughs> you know that would require many more hours in the day
The third movement or romance from the second suite for two pianos, Opus 17 by Sergei Rachmaninov, as performed there by Luis Magalesh and Nina Schumann, and taken from their first CD, entitled Two Pianists, The Complete Works for Two Pianos by Sergei Rachmaninov, recorded in 2006. I want to ask you about competitions, and, and you've participated and played in a number of competitions. You've won prizes in, in both national and international competitions. Most notably, you won the second prize for the best performance of Russian music and first prize for the best performance of Rachmaninov at the 2002 Russian Music International Piano Competition. And you've also served in a number of juries of international and national piano competitions. What role did those achievements play in your career, and, and why is it important for pianists to participate in competitions? I actually don't know. <laughs> in terms of the role of participating in competitions, I, I really don't know. I'm, I'm, I've been at a loss for many years because that's one of the topics that maybe for my second PhD I might. <laughs> but I don't. I, I really don't know. It's part of the jury. Yes, of course, it's a prestigious thing from that side of the industry. Um, but uh, yeah. I, I, there is an element about competitions that I very much fight against on my own playing and on my um, uh, on the label uh, that we run together, uh, which is the the risk of creating a stereotype player, creating a stereotype sound, a stereotype technical delivery. Everything becomes what the jury should expect to listen, and then plus more you know if you go back in time and if you hear the early tapes of the Clyburn or the Tchaikovsky uh, or Rubinstein they played very differently and I uh, and I have this conversation with other jury members and they say but it was different times different aesthetic uh, beliefs different um, demands on the industry but what went wrong then because the freedom was so much greater. It's almost like the composer and the score became much more important than the performer. If you understand what I mean. The performer took a second role now because the performer just has to be able to play everything perfectly in time with no wrong notes and deliver it as it is on the page. So the score becomes more important. While in many recordings that I have and they are all 90% of them are of the old time the score was only an, an instrument of, of interpretation of taking it further but with that risk of taking things outside the box comes also a risk of failure mm -hmm. a risk of technical failure and there's nothing wrong with it that's actually quite refreshing it's the human side of music uh, that I always miss, in, especially in the new generation. Um, of course, there are some that are really phenomenal and they are able to extrapolate those, those things, uh, those, those elements in music. Uh, but those ones are the ones that deserve the big stage, sure. But normally those are the ones that don't get the big stage. <laughs> Do you understand my? Yes. Uh, that is my my problem with competitions is is uh, the sense of expectation of what the competitors must play like, must sound like. 
I had a, 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 I was in the jury of the um, Tchaikovsky Junior just now, uh, just now, well, a couple of months ago. End of last year, yeah. Yeah, and uh, I was having a conversation with Ovchinikov, the pianist, and because we were the, the winner, he was 16 years old, and was from Ukraine, and he played uh, Prokofiev number two. With 16 years old, and you should have heard the cello, the, the cello division winner with 12 years old playing Sansans, meaning mind-boggling. And we were talking with each other, and we said, but something goes very wrong the moment they get into university level, 17, 18, probably 19, I don't know. Something goes very wrong with their education that they lose that innocence, that spontaneity mm -hmm. of music all those kids that played in the final round could be I don't know I don't want to compare to anyone but could be unbelievable world stars in classical music but most of them will not <laughs> because they will be taught on how to achieve something and what do they need to achieve not necessarily, not only the, the what they have to play like, but how they have to play like, and that that is a, already a double uh, double problem. While there is youth, there's always imagination, there's always uh, creation, there's always something very fresh, very unheard. And he played Prokofiev II in an unbelievable way. Meaning, technically, of course, it was perfect, but that. I'm sure it was not his priority. Yes. His priority was not that, it was to have fun. And he had unbelievable fun. So, if that means that this, this may be the result of the senior competitions, or if it may be the result of the demands of the, uh, of the industry, of the 21st uh, century industry, I can't pinpoint yet. But I think the record industry has a big hand on it. Um, which I am of the belief that is going to change, should change soon. I, I want to be instrumental on that change as well. Let's listen now to a marvellous performance of the third movement from the Piano Concerto No. 4 in G minor, Opus 40, by Sergei Rachmaninov, as performed by Luis Magalesh with the Cape Philharmonic Orchestra conducted by Ariantin in this live recording from the Cape Town City Hall, recorded on the 25th of November, 2010.
In 2006, you recorded your first album with Nina, a double CD release of the complete two piano works of Rachmaninoff on the Universal label, which was, I mean, it is a massive undertaking even for experienced recording artists to record the Rachmaninoff complete works. How did that particular CD release come about and, and what was your first real experience like behind the microphone? Oh, vibes in the woods. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we, like, we prepared for months and months, prepared for recording for months. Uh, that's not the same thing as preparing for uh, recital. And uh, we had the very big fortune of having a world-class sound engineer from Deutsche Grammophon, Mr. Wolf-Dieter Karwatki, unbelievable tone master, um, but above all, unbelievable ear. And he was the most sympathetic producer slash tone master just to have to be able to finish symphonic dances and first suite and second suite and the Sigmorso and all that kind of stuff, just from the physical aspect of being able to survive a day for someone that ne had never done it before in that kind of, of uh, intensity, it was uh, quite a task. And we ended up playing and playing, and Wolf Dieter would just say, well, I think you can do better. Oh, okay. <laughs> okay, so then we play again. Then we play again, oh, well, maybe, you know, the microphone thing sounds a bit slower, so try it faster. And you were there as well. Yeah. Actually, you were there. So, ended up being a very tiring process. But if we knew then what we know now, it would have been very different. It would have taken us less time, for one. And, and if you say, if you knew then what you know now, what are some of those things? Well, because we, we, we didn't know what edits were. <laughs> Meaning you would play the whole bloody <laughs> movement of a suite and we would have to be not perfect. Again, another uh, uh, inheritance of the industry. But to be not perfect and... Okay, no, there is a not mistake. Okay, let's go and play <laughs> the whole thing all over again. So it had... Uh, I don't know how many edits it had. Probably, I think it told Minimal. like 30-something on a double CD. 30-something edits. For someone like Marta Argerich, of course, that doesn't play a role but for us as you know yeah. babes yeah. in the woods it was just really then Wolf Dieter said you know do you know this pianist and he gave me her name which I'm not going to say on air do you know how many edits she had on one piece she said a thousand two hundred and she's having a wonderful career so coming back to the industry that's what the kids end up listening. Mm. And that's what they're trying to achieve. And that's what, yeah. Of course. Yeah. But only if they have Pro Tools and <laughs> <laughs> two microphones and a very knowledgeable editing capacity. Yes. Yes. So it was a great, a great uh, project, but never again.
The fourth movement, Tarantella there from the second suite for two pianos, Opus 17, from Luis Magalesh and Nina Schumann's first CD of the complete two piano works by Sergei Rachmaninoff, released in 2006. In 2008, you and Nina founded your own record label, um, Two Pianist Records, and subsequently also Two Pianists Artist Management. What led you to start your own independent record label? Because I know that there's a very strong ideological reason why you started this record company. Well, it was a little bit of a retaliation kind of process against the, uh, against the majors uh, for many reasons that we don't need to talk about. But I think the way that, um, that the majors conduct their business does not favor the artist. It favors uh, the top uh, management of those uh, companies. And actually who gave that idea was Wolf Dieter Karvatki coming to the, uh, the sound engineer and we were, he said, but why don't you do your own thing? Why don't you record yourself? You distribute yourself and you know, you do your own thing. You record when you want, how you want. And of course the the principle is seems quite simple, and it is. In actual fact, it is a simple process. Uh, but we didn't know very much what <laughs> it entails uh, back then. So it started as a vanity label, not necessarily as an independent for uh, other artists, but as a vanity, as a label that recorded us. Hence, two pianists, to be able to uh, uh, to record our own stuff. Then we started thinking outside the box a bit. Well, I mean, in the short span of literally four years, you've built up two pianists from a small startup, really, to an award-winning, critically acclaimed record label with nine Grammy submissions to your name, two Sama Awards, a German Record Critics Award, and formal recognition from the famous French classical music magazine Diaphason. In addition, two pianists boasts a remarkable roster of artists, including both young and up-and-coming artists like pianist Lukas Vondracek, and more established artists such as pianist Konstantin Sherbakov or mezzo-soprano Michel Briet. And amazingly, you've partnered with industry giant Naxos as your global distribution partner. What are some of the difficult lessons that you've learned as from a managing point of view in, in steering this company in the right direction? With anything like a performance, like a concert, you can only hope you take the right decisions at the right time. And that your memory doesn't fail you, that you just play as you are supposed to play, according to your own beliefs, according to what you believe is the most beautiful and the most honest way of playing. And we run the label in the same way that we play a concert. We take risks, we uh, play safe when it's needed, when it's the difficult part, we play safe. Um, we try to be as beautiful as possible, as we can afford to be. Uh, we try to be as flamboyant as possible on stage without uh, losing uh, musicianship and integrity. Mm-hmm. And I can go on creating these alliterations, but it, all of this is the way that you run a, a business. You know, yes. The flamboyancy is your marketing. You know, the, the, how far do you take that? How far do you want to take on a concert stage your flamboyancy to the point that you start losing your integrity, musical integrity, in the same way that in the business 
do you want to take marketing to such a nasty way that people forget what is actually inside the disc that's yes. what matters that's the balancing act is is taking the label as a concert and we all want to play well in a concert because if we don't we don't get invited again <laughs> in the same way as with the label you want that you do things in the most tasteful and most honest manner that your client comes back and buys the next one so that for us there is not really a mystery on how to do it is the same mystery as how to perform it that's all it is but as as someone who also has to think in a different way about the market and about marketing and i, I mean we we spoke um, before about the way in which you've you know utilized digital technology which is absolutely amazing you've just recently released your app mm-hmm. um, the two pianists app those sort of decisions how do you decide what would work for you and, and how do you manage it from that point of view the marketing and, and the business decisions well I, it's, I don't think we put it in the same cake um, as a business decision being associated with the marketing um, probably we are completely wrong uh, in thinking that but we always have been of the belief that the marketing is a result of a business decision and that business decision is your product and for us our products are music mm-hmm. you know we don't sell CDs mm-hmm. <laughs> we sell music mm-hmm. uh, so if we have a good product that's our business decision the marketing somehow happens I still don't know exactly how it happens but it does happen um, and I think if I can uh, think out loud because I never thought of it in such a business-like way because I'm not trained for it is every single aspect of a recording we know what is there Yes. from the leading time to the distance between tracks to the noise reduction to the the hissing how much hiss do you want on the background of the recording to the booklet to the graphic design, to the picture that is chosen, uh, to the color, mm-hmm. to the texture, to mm-hmm. we know every single thing. I think because we know every single thing, the marketing becomes very easy. And probably the biggest risk that we run uh, is if we grow too much, we stop knowing about every single thing, which then the business decision becomes associated with the marketing decision then it moves away from our core yes. thought of of uh, the the process of the of the whole thing so i cannot give you a very intelligible answer to that question that uh, any normal business person or any normal person can understand because we always create the hype and the vibe and the what we believe the title deserves after only after we know everything about yes. the title and there's always a story behind it yes. which ends up helping the marketing anyway you know yeah. you practice you play you know you get paid but i guess i think what i find fascinating is that you manage to be very in tune with what's happening out there and what the latest technology demands in and amongst everything else that you do and you know what will work and what doesn't and where the future of, of music distribution is going. 
you know, which is which is something. I hope different. I know. I, I really hope I know. But just to give a, a bit of less accurate, you know, the the day is a very long day. There is a many hours in the day. <laughs> if one plans your hours properly, you can do a lot of things. Especially if you have two kids that wake up at five. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's perfect. Next, we're going to listen to two preludes by Claude Debussy, both from his second book of preludes. The first is General Levine, followed by Feu de Artifice, or Fireworks, the final prelude of the set. The pianist is, of course, Louis Magalèche, and these live performances were recorded in the Indler Hall Stellenbosch on the 30th of July, 2010.
So talking about kids, your eldest child, the son Antonio, was born in 2007, and two years later in 2009, you became the father of a girl, Leah. How has being a father changed your life? Gosh. <laughs> <laughs> you told me this was going to be easy. Um, in every way, you know, everything becomes tangible. Everything in life becomes real. You know? Until they were born, there was always a way to do something else differently. You know? They are here. You are here for them. That's what you are here for. And maybe I'm too Latino in that way of, you know, being a very, very family man. Don't really go out anymore. And well, who has time with your schedule? <laughs> no, I wish I could. Uh, but every time I go out, I feel guilty for being out. <laughs> you know, that's kind of a, a very sad realization. You know, I have to go on Sunday, uh, even though it's only for three days. But, you know, I, I get anxious. Um, but it's a good anxiety. It's mm -hmm. a good pressure um, because I want, I wanted them in the first place, and I love them to death. And I just would like to be around them all the time. Uh, even though my daughter is quite impossible at the moment, she's three and she thinks she's Rapunzel and <laughs> she cries like a movie star. <laughs> it's not fun, but anyway. Um, it's it's a different a different thing like you know falling in love for the first time like marrying like having kids probably it will be the same once they leave the house and then you know it's stages in your life but i'm still young i'm 22 so <laughs> well talking about life and the reality of life last year nina was diagnosed with breast cancer and that was something which she very bravely fought and overcame. I wanted to ask you the impact that it had on your life because you had to obviously be very strong. You had to support her. You had to support the family. Um, how has that changed your view on life? I, I, well, I, I learned some things about myself I did not know they existed. Um, there is... Uh, the moment that I knew about the uh, about the diagnosis, I remember I was in an examination at the university, and I knew that she went for the testing, and uh, she called me. I couldn't pick up because I was listening to some uh, exam, and uh, she SMS me to say we need to talk, and I knew it was. Uh, and I think that moment then was the beginning of a very very cruel process that life sometimes throws at you and I think it was uh, substantially more cruel to Nina than it was for me I only had to hold things together I didn't have to go through what she went through. So the cruelty of that process uh, became even more uh, noticeable when my kids did not notice anything different. And I know it might sound strange, but the fact that they did not know anything different 
that there was any problem meaning yeah mummy has a ball in a boob that needs to be taken out <laughs> you know that's how they took it it's then it became even more cruel because you realized you are feeling like that mm -hmm. because you know of the severity of the disease but you also know that it might be nothing it might be something that she will overcome that she will have a healthy lifestyle for many years to come so do you understand this this was for me the most difficult thing to handle was the positiveness within that cruelty mm -hmm. of life uh, so yeah it was shit yeah it was horrible uh, I hope I did a good job I think I did a good job um, to make her as comfortable as possible uh, but the worst that could possibly happen listen to this I had to go Nina she was already out of the hospital I go to Munich I had to be there for again very short visit I arrived back she decided to get me a puppy <laughs> <laughs> to take care of <laughs> <laughs> meaning I, I love dogs very much so but the timing <laughs> Nina the timing not right so I broke down that night for the first time when I realized I had one more being to take care of that's when of course I joke with it and it, it is not a I love Pedro the Ridgeback uh, which is Granted, a considerably large dog. Yeah, very large. That. I cannot hold him in my arms <laughs> anymore. Um, but I realized then, when that happened, that yeah, it was more difficult than what you thought. Yes. Um, and then at the same time, I realized that I'm actually quite a strong man, and I managed to handle my concerts and the company and the university. The extra small but still some extra load mm -hmm. from her mm -hmm. so yeah I'm I'm amazing
The Prelude Number no. 17, Opus 34, by Dmitry Shostakovich, as performed there by Luis Magalesh in that live performance from the Inler Hall Stellenbosch, recorded on the 30th of July, 2010. I want to ask you about your role as teacher. Uh, you were, in 2006, you were appointed to the piano faculty of the Department of Music at Stellenbosch University. What is for you the most rewarding and also the most frustrating thing about your role as a, as a teacher? Rewarding. It's when a student gets what they need. Frustrating is when a student doesn't get what they need. And it's frustrating because I always believe that I did something wrong myself. I did not communicate the information properly. I did not exemplify properly. So it becomes a very kind of irritating <laughs> notion. I get very irritated when a student doesn't get what they need and they always think that it's because of them and I, I keep having this conversation with my students and apparently they are petrified of me and I, I starting to realize why it's because I also get irritated with myself not being able to convey the information oh of course 90% of the time is their fault anyway but <laughs> the 10% the 10% is uh, no, I'm joking. Of course, when they don't practice. No, they deserve everything they get. Yeah, I, I don't <laughs> even listen to them. I just ask them to leave. <laughs> I have more things to do with my life. But uh, but is that aspect of teaching that uh, I want to excel? Um, but every day I learn. Uh, and that's the only way you can excel, is by learning with different individuals, how they perceive the information, how they adapt it to themselves, how they incorporate it to become an organic kind of manifestation. Uh, that's what irritates me the most. What are some of the exciting projects that you've got lined up for, for this year? I know that there's a very exciting corn gold project lying ahead. Yes. Some CD releases in the pipeline. We can do whatever we manage within our calendar, and that's always we always try to... We always tend to do a bit more than what we can do, uh, but I think this year we are... Uh, being clever but one thing one very exciting project which you already mentioned is the release of the Goldberg uh, variations and that is I, I th it's going to be pretty special mm -hmm. uh, I think for us mainly but we hope also for the listener uh, it's strange because 75 minutes of music who the hell wants to sit down <laughs> in front of two speakers <laughs> for 75 and listen variations on the same theme but we hope that they embrace it as a spiritual journey that they can recreate in their own minds. That's that's our uh, our goal. Um, then we have um, corn, the Corn Gold Project with inverted commas. The Corn Gold Project. <laughs> uh, we are trying to record every single chamber work that Corn Gold wrote, and it 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 grew out of. Um, out of success, this idea, because we, we played in the Chair Music Festival uh, in Stellenbosch, uh, both the suite and the quintet and the string sextet. And the group itself is such a magical group that clicked in such a way that not even established groups, chamber groups, sometimes can play like. And we thought, gosh, this is the most 
insane business decision. We will lose money like you cannot believe. <laughs> we will never recoup the money. And I'm sure if Mr. Klaus Heyman listens to me, he's thinking, gosh, this stupid Portuguese guy. <laughs> and you are right, Mr. Heyman. But again, it's like playing a concert. It's Even if we lose money, we will feel very happy playing it and listening to it. Uh, because they really are magical musicians with that repertoire. So that's one of the reasons why I'm going to Berlin now, is to rehearse, or two rehearse. Listen, I'm going to Berlin to rehearse. It's, <laughs> it's minus seven degrees there. That's that's commitment. Eh? Absolutely. Um, that's that. Then we are recording another two piano disc. So this is a double whammy for myself and Nina this year, uh, because we had to move everything from 2012 to 2013, uh, for breast reasons. And uh, we are recording an all-American program in June. It's a lot of surprises there with some uh, Rozevsky that some of you have heard already. Oh, but well, some, we are really hoping the Winsboro Cotton Yes, please. but some yes. Lieberman as well and some Barber. You will, you will enjoy that Fantastic. one. Fantastic. Uh, that will release, be released later in November ahead of our USA tour in January. What else? Nina is very busy. Uh, she has her own things. I don't know. You can interview her and she'll <laughs> tell <laughs> uh, Together we have many concerts to come up. I, I don't want to lie. I have my computer there, but I'm not going to read the calendar. <laughs> but there are a lot of new exciting things. Lucas, on the label side, Lucas uh, is releasing his CD now in March. Now that's a guy you must keep a watch on. He is just unbelievable musician. Um, and the most amazing person. He won the, the UNISA, the UNISA International, International Piano Competition, yeah. yeah. The last edition. So that is going to be, uh, I think it's going to make the rounds internationally. It's really, really fantastic. We have uh, a release also of Achilles de la Vigne, a very interesting one. His history of tango. He's Argentinian and he has a lot of. Uh, um, we, I already have the master, but anyway, um, f um, tangos that were dedicated to him wow. that are unrecorded, and of course, you know, with this uh, with this flair, that music uh, can make the 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 story uh, to anyone that would want to go to Argentina. They just buy the CD. We're starting our new imprint of compilations that will be released next month. Uh, no, March. Sorry. It's our own decision, myself and Nina, of what we believe to be the most uh, beautiful, pleasant tracks. Um, and we called it Impressions. So Impressions number one is coming uh, in March, just digitally. Uh, okay. So you will only be able to get it uh, on the normal stuff, iTunes, uh, Napster and all that stuff. But that is a compilation of very, very, very nice uh, tracks that we believe will you know it can make your night a very successful <laughs> one <laughs> is this like your little black book of tunes yes exactly <laughs> with superpowers uh, impressions too will come later in the year so we yeah there's a lot to well, look a, out for. There's one more that I know, which is, a, I think, called Short Stories. It is oh, there's years. Short Stories as well. Yeah, yeah. sorry. My shorter memory. Uh, yeah, Short Stories with Daniel Rowland. Uh, uh, a beautiful disc of small little pieces for violin and piano. Very, very tastefully done. Very beautifully played. Um, gosh, yeah.
And now for a taste of things to come with the Corn Gold Project, the fourth movement from the Suite for Piano, Left Hand and Strings, Opus 23 by Erich Korngold, in a live recording from the Endler Hall Stellenbosch, recorded on the 13th of February 2010. In this recording you'll hear Luis Magalhaes on piano, of course, joined by Benjamin Schmidt and Suzanne Martins on violins and Peter Martins on cello.
Well, you're obviously a very, very busy man. My last question to you is what do you do to relax and completely unwind and you clear your mind? I really don't want to know. <laughs> <laughs> but I'll tell you. My, my favorite way of relaxing is by doing bricolage, DIY, building stuff. Oh. Yes. Okay. Building stuff. That's if you. That's why many times I arrive with cuts in my hands, which is my broker should not know about, because <laughs> 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 I will be insured in much higher. Note yourself <laughs> to edit this. Hard yes, time. edit these out. Um, is to build stuff. I mean, I did the whole cupboard system in the garage. I just put a new swimming pool pump now this afternoon after some four hours <laughs> of corn cold. And I have something to do, maybe to trim Pedro's hair. <laughs> I love bricolage. Well, Luis, it was an absolute pleasure chatting to you today. And I just wanted to say thank you for taking the time and sharing with the listeners a bit about your own musical and personal journey. So thank you very much. Thank you for having me. Well, that brings us to the end of this edition of Great Interpreters. Before I say goodbye, just a reminder that tonight's program will be available for download as of this coming Monday from my website on and off the record at www.onandofftherecord.com or you can also find it on iTunes. If you haven't yet, I do encourage you to go and have a look online at On and Off the Record where you'll be able to listen to and download some of the previous programs that I've presented here on Fine Music Radio. That website address again, www.onandofftherecord.com. You can also send me your feedback or your thoughts on tonight's program via my website or via email to adrian at onandofftherecord.com. I'll be back on Friday the 22nd of February here on Fine Music Radio with a program on the amazing American soprano Sondra Radvanovsky, whom I was very fortunate to hear singing the role of Amelia in Verdi's Unballo and Mascara at the Metropolitan Opera in New York last November. All I'll say at this point is that Miss Radvanovsky bowled me over completely. Hers is an incredible house-filling voice of sumptuous beauty. So if you're in any way a fan of opera or of great singing, please do join me Friday the 22nd of February at 8pm here on Fine Music Radio for some spectacular moments from the career of Sondra Radvanovsky. But for tonight, all that remains is for me to bid you adieu until the 22nd of February. Playing us out is, of course, pianist Luis Magalesh with Tiko Tiko Nofuba by Dabriu in this particular arrangement by Mark Andre Hamelin, recorded live on the 8th of October 2005 in the Inle Hall in Stellenbosch. From me, Adrian Fuchs, have a wonderful weekend. Good night. <laughs>